Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. I think any of us who are involved in sports medicine and the care of young athletes appreciate those in the media who just get it. I know I've been interviewed multiple times over the years for either print articles or for broadcast, and sometimes the focus of the article or interview doesn't seem to get what we really want to convey to the public when certain quotes or sound bites are chosen over others. We don't always have a choice in that, but it's really refreshing when we have friends in the media who can really highlight a topic who do it well. Today on the podcast, we speak with an award-winning journalist and discuss her journey into the world of sports safety and advocating for the health of our athletes. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. My guest today is Stephanie Cousidem, a DuPont and Emmy Award-winning journalist who is the sports enterprise reporter at the Louisville Courier-Journal, which is part of the USA Today Network. She received her bachelor's degree in journalism from Indiana University and has had jobs in Oklahoma, Northeast Ohio, Houston, Cincinnati, and now Louisville. In the world of sports medicine, she reported a seven-month investigation into sudden death in youth sports called Safer Sidelines. She was recently awarded the National Athletic Trainers Association President Service Award, the Secondary School Athletic Trainers Committee Advocate Award, and the Corey Stringer Institute's Life Savings Education Award. Welcome to the podcast, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to talk to you today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this discussion. And as we were talking before we started to record this, we both had the honor of being award winners from uh, recipients from the uh, NATA just a week ago. I was very honored to get the honorary membership award. So I'm officially now an honorary AT, I guess. And then you got the the wonderful President Service Award. And I was nice to be in the audience and watch the nice presentation that they gave honoring you and your work. And that's a little bit what I wanted to talk about. So I think, first of all, we do, let's just hear about the background of what spurred your interest in sideline safety. Sure. Yeah. It is a topic and a theme that's showed up again and again in my reporting. So I wouldn't say that I set out by any means to do this. It kind of found me and wouldn't let go. And I say that by saying like, I tried to stop reporting on it. (laughs) (laughs) And it found me again. It started a little bit. I mean, I was an athlete myself in high school and I started covering sports in 2012. I moved to Oklahoma and I covered the Oklahoma Sooners and a deadly tornado came through that year, comes through almost every year in Oklahoma. The only athlete who died in that tornado was a young girl. I think she was a second or third grader. Her name was Sydney Angle. And she died because the wall of the building collapsed and she suffocated. So that really got me thinking about sports from a different aspect. And I immediately followed working in Oklahoma by moving to Cleveland and covering 180 high schools. I don't know if I breathed while I was there, but (laughs) I learned, again, a lot about everything but the X's and O's, all the things that would come up around this kid getting injured and then this kid over here getting injured, especially at 180 high schools. I was always reporting on an injury report. Mm -hmm. And during that time, concussions were starting to be a little bit of a hot button topic. It was like 2013. I had watched a PBS documentary and one line in it said that Dr. Anne McKee, the woman who cuts open all the brains with CT, that she found her love of brains in Cleveland. And I was like, wait a minute. And so I started researching that and I published my first major project. 
that was about how concussions were like this hot button back to school. They were the new back to school thing, right? Is like doing impact testing. And so I did like a 11 part series on what were concussions and it was called Mind Over Matter. I moved from there to Houston. Again, was reporting on general sports and then rice football. So nothing in the health arena. Mm -hmm. And I just so happened to find a story about it. A kid who was hit in the heart, who's a youth baseball pitcher, got hit in the heart by a line drive, collapsed. And doctors could not tell me if there was another known case of a kid who suffered commotio cordis, who restarted his heart on his own without an ADD. And his name was Walker Johnson. And I just remember being floored by this. I moved away. Well, while I was there, actually, sorry, this is all one. I'm in Houston. I switched over to TV. And while I was there, I learned that there was only like five athletic trainers at the time for 25 high schools. And I thought, that's kind of crazy. It's hot here. And I was a runner. I picked up running there and I couldn't imagine. So again, just started looking at how heat affects an athlete's body. That's really the major turning point is there is the NATA convention that year was in Houston. So we asked Rob Huggins of KSI to come talk about Atlas and show how bad the athletic training population was in that area. Jeff Hopp out of Marietta High School, who had worked on a study with Bud Cooper about heat in high schools in Georgia, Luke and Rihanna Pryor, because they had just done a study about high school athletics. And they all said, yes, I couldn't believe it. Right. (laughs) This is like a story now we like tell, like, remember that one time? And that project was 19 days away from airing when Hurricane Harvey flooded it. I I was just basically told like that story will never see you in the light of day. Move on. So I tried and moved to Cincinnati and I became a special project, an investigative reporter or a producer for a TV station there. And I was reporting on childhood poverty and everything else. And I was looking into opioids and addiction. And I saw about Narcan being a tool in a athletic trainers or like in schools. And I was like, Oh, I wonder if athletic trainers, you know, use this. And so I just Googled something and a girl had done a presentation on it. And so I called her. She's like, yeah, you know, nobody really has Narcan yet, but do you know that not enough high schools have athletic trainers? And I was like, (laughs) do I know this? So I pitched it as a Friday night story to my, in our morning meeting. And I said, Hey, you know, they're wearing decals on their helmets because there's not enough athletic trainers. There's not one for every high school. And they're like, you seem to know a lot about this. And I was like, yeah, you know, something I once did. And they're like, no, no, you should pitch this to the the news director. So I pitched him a 15 part series and I ended up producing over 200 stories on the lack of healthcare on high school sidelines. We called it athletes at risk. And I don't know how far into reporting it. Six months, maybe. Yeah, I think six months. Matthew Mangine Jr. is a Northern Kentucky high school soccer player. And he's now known for, he was the last kid to collapse on a high school sideline in Kentucky. And that was one of the closest collapses to where DeMar collapsed. He collapsed June 16, 2020, and that changed my whole career. So I started looking into his death and why a high school athlete would just collapse. It's the first time in my reporting that I had been anywhere where an athlete had collapsed in the same area. Mm-hmm. All the rest of the times I'd been reporting on Zach Martin Polsenberg, who lives in Florida, right? And, and my TV station, actually, we covered his death because we were going to write about him. That was part of the story that flooded. But this is the first time it happened where I was at. And so by that point, I knew a little bit, like, there are records that come out of somebody dying. And I, and I knew already that, you know, 911 calls happen. There are runs, there are audio, there's body camera footage. 
And so I asked for all of it. And then that's how we kind of pieced together what happened that night, which showed that it took at least 12 minutes from the time EMS was called to the time they arrived before Matthew received a shock. So likely over 12 minutes. It's always interesting. I I sensed a little theme of natural disasters related to some of your turning points here with the tornado you mentioned, and then we had the flooding here. Interesting. Interesting. I know. Don't don't be in the same city I live in. That's the moral of the story, I guess. (laughs) I guess so. For me, it's, you know, my kind of big area, quote unquote, claim to fame in, in sports medicine just was writing some of the documents for the American Academy of Pediatrics and concussions. And that was never anything I set to go out into the world of sports medicine as being kind of like my big thing, but it turned out to be that way. And it was, it was more that I just got into when I got into sports medicine, we're like, you know, we don't really have anything talking about concussions. And I, you know, hadn't personally experienced concussions in sports myself. I was a cross country and track runner. And most of us, most of the time we're not getting hit in the heads, fortunately in those sports, but it just was something that kind of spurred my interest. And then it just went from there. And it's, so it's always interesting. Like there's that one little thing that kind of just gets going and either in your head or something that you just run into. And then, and then it just goes from there and that, that it just spurred my interest in the world of concussions from there on. And I'd love to talk to you more about the concussions things you mentioned, the mind over matter series, what kind of things did you focus on when you went through that? You mentioned the impact testing and things like that, but I, I've, mm-hmm. I've scrolled through some of your stuff and I know that that you did a lot more than just talking about impact testing. <laughs> That's a digging way back into my memory. Decade ago. Yeah. <laughs> so we reported <laughs> on one of the, oh man, these were so much fun to talk to, to report on. So I reported on the impact testing being them hot new back to school thing, a Bluetooth mouth guard that mm-hmm. tracked impact. And then it's a story that I, I really wish I could still dig up. I don't know if I can, I haven't tried lately, but it's, I did a story on, um, you know, Chris Nowinski shows up to these places and says like, Hey, will you donate your loved one's brain? Or maybe they've already had it written. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, how does it get from that person's body all the way to Anne McKee? Yeah. And so I tracked how it how it went from body to lab. Chris and I have had a nice little at times love hate relationship, not not in a in a bad way, but in a playful way as as people in the in this world. And we uh, I actually had him on my podcast uh, a couple of years ago, and we we just kind of talked about stuff related to CTE and 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 that kind of stuff. And we actually had a we we had a quote unquote famous battle on Twitter that went back and forth of just we were just debating each other on Twitter, which Twitter you know is not really a great place to debate because you can't get much in there. And that was at the time I think it was still 140 characters, not the 280 or now that you can pay for as much as you want to write in one little post. And he had private messaged me after we had had that little debate. He goes, let's never do this again. Let's figure out a way to do this in a way better than Twitter, because that was just too much, too much time. But yeah, I mean, it's always good having those people that are advocates and have that passion and, and those that can have that respectful dialogue. And I think the good thing about, I think our conversation, he and I is, is we got to the point where we realized we actually do have similar kind of end goals here. It just may not look at it on the outside from the way we're, we're kind of approaching things. And and he has obviously a very narrow focus as far as what he's specifically looking at as the one area of CTE. But and, and I, you covered a little bit of that too, as far as just CTE in general, I think with your, your series, not only just with Chris, but I think you talked about some other stuff, if I remember correctly from what I saw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, I think in in the end, it was like 11 different pieces. There Mm -hmm. was like somebody who wrote a book about concussions at that time. 
it, it ended up winning a couple of like newspaper more focused awards, but yeah, at, at the time it's, it's what got me to Houston. That, that coverage mm-hmm. is what made the Houston Chronicle say like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's early in your career, right? So that's, you know, that's something that you can win awards and that obviously makes things more prominent for you there. And then, you know, you mentioned the DeMar Hamlin medical emergency that we saw earlier this year, which I'll tell you just personally, as I was watching that game live at home, And I mean, that rocked me just watching it happen live. I was very emotional watching that myself, just knowing that and being someone who's been on sidelines and has been on an NFL sideline and was for 11 years and knowing all the things that were happening in that incidence and realizing this is not good. Everybody who can say that they think that this was something that was not a big deal. It was, I was like, wow. But knowing how prepared and how much that was rehearsed and how much that's something that those pro teams do on an annual basis. I I was hoping that it was going to be a good outcome, but yeah, it was one of those things that it was, that was uh, amazing. I I was, like I said, I was telling my kids and telling my wife at the moment, I'm like, I go, this is, this is crazy. I go, this is like the worst nightmare for any sports medicine professional on the sideline is when you see an athlete collapse, but also knowing in that moment that you're going to do what you need to do to get this done. And so obviously, you know, that incident there was there. You mentioned that that was something that drew more attention to the sideline safety and how do you feel that that kind of impacted your work once that incident happened in in conjunction with with the other stuff that you had been already reporting on? You know, I'm sure that in life there's all sorts of like kind of, you know, like soapboxes or whatever things, things you're passionate about that you stand up for and you say, this is what I'm going to talk about until I'm blue in the face and I believe in it and I understand it and I know it to be true. And I knew it to be true that sudden death in athletes happens. And it happens way more than we report on that moment for me. That moment for me was this happens. Mm -hmm. And now everybody is seeing it. And then everybody saw it and they all started texting and calling me and being like, Oh my gosh, this is what you've been talking about. Mm -hmm. For me, I'm like, what do you mean? This is what I've been talking about. Like the medical community, <laughs> athletic trainers have been trying to tell people this for decades. Mm-hmm. I'm just reporting on the fact that this happens. And we as journalists and sports reporters haven't really paid a lot of attention to the intersection of health, safety, and athletes in this way. Mm-hmm. We tend to, I say we tend to report in it in a, on a trifecta, the death, the candlelight vigil and the when the cause of death is finally released. And then we kind of call it a tragedy and, and we move on. But for me, if it keeps happening over and over and over again, there's something along the lines that maybe we're not doing right or maybe we're missing, right? Maybe it's not necessarily doing right and wrong, but just missing, just being not as informed. And, and it became the motto of the piece. And it honestly is something that I keep in my reporting every single day to this day is this lawmaker talked about a law that she created in Kentucky following the death of a high school athlete. And I asked her, why did you create it? And she said, well, it puts venue specific emergency action plans in place at every single venue because it is going to force you to know where you need to go at that venue because you don't know what you don't know. And that is So it shows up again and again in my reporting, like parents, the general public, sports fans, they just don't know that this happens. That day for me, that moment, 
it's almost unexplainable because I'd seen it before. Maybe mm-hmm. not necessarily in that way. Sat in my office crying over 911 calls where you can hear an agonal breath. No way am I putting that on air. Yeah. Right. But, and I'm the first person to listen to like this family, families haven't even listened to this. The moment Damar collapsed was, I don't know how to describe it. The whole world saw something that they never see. They never yeah. experience it, but it also was the, the catalyst to change. It's mm-hmm. what caused everyone to say, Oh, this can happen. And that moment when, when Corey Stringer died, we weren't there. He died in the middle of the night. His collapse really wasn't caught on video so much. There were a couple photos taken of it, but it wasn't like a rolling video where you could see him collapse and see his decline. And heat's a little different. Like the fact that it was sudden cardiac on camera on the biggest stage, like there's no way to ignore that. You can't ignore Mm -hmm. it. It changed everything. It, It changed So I was already reporting on Safer Sidelines. I had gotten a grant from the University of Southern California's Center for Health Journalism. Safer Sidelines was coming and Damar put it on warp speed. Also just made me pivot. So first off, now I'm following AED bills that never existed before. We're never going to be introduced. I don't know where my February, March, April basically went besides to like a lot of deep breathing. Mm -hmm. Because it it changed everything. It gave me the link between what I've been trying to show in my reporting that this happened with Corey Stringer and things changed in the NFL after Corey Stringer died. Why hasn't it trickled down to high schools? Well, then it changed it to Corey Stringer died and things were in place. So DeMar was better protected. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we will continue our discussion on athlete advocacy. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can. With perpetual advertising, here's how it works. Magazine, radio, and television ads are efforts that people might see or hear once, and then they're lost forever. Perpetual advertising provides you with the chance for repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, even years after it's originally inserted inside a podcast. So even if your advertising is included in a podcast years ago, those efforts are still impactful, providing you with true return on investment, real impact, thanks to perpetual advertising. Are you ready to change the way you and your company or organization advertises? Find out more and launch a unique perpetual advertising effort now by visiting twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great, cost-effective, on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that's truly outside the box from The Voice Box. Voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. 
now back to the podcast. I mean, you're talking about the safer sideline. So I think this is a good transition to talk about that series that just came out in May. You know, we'll have a link to that in our show notes so people can reference that. I thought it was very well done and kind of give some of the highlights of your investigative research that you came up with and you reported on. For people who love data, there's a ton of data in it. So the premise of it is, or the thesis of it is, is that sudden death in sport happens and there are gold standards that could be put in place to help better protect, but instead we're usually left floundering trying to figure out what went wrong. It covers everything from wet bulb globe temperature and the difference between that and heat index and why WBGT is the gold standard and why you don't want to go off of heat index. It covers emergency action plans and venue-specific emergency action plans and the difference. It covers sudden cardiac arrest. It covers your four H's. Mm-hmm. And, and we teach you what the four H's are because a lot of the public doesn't even realize that like your 90% of your sudden death in sport is caused by these four H's. So basically like, let's start there, right? Let's break down for you that this thing that you just saw happen with them that almost happened with Damar, it's way more common than you think. Mm-hmm. I'm located in Louisville, Kentucky. And so I truly believe it's it's not a Louisville problem. It's not a Kentucky problem. It's not a big city, small town issue. It's a microcosm of a national problem. There's a kid who died here in 2008, Max Gilpin. His case made national news. And the state of Kentucky put in place venue-specific emergency action plans. When he died, they put in a, a law. But I had started researching that law following the death of Matthew Mangine Jr., wondering how... I kept asking my photographer, Eric Gerhardt. So he and I were a two-person unit in Cincinnati. And we talk about this all the time. And I said, I don't understand how. How does a kid who goes to a private high school that has five AEDs in a state that has a law that says you must have a venue-specific EAP and rehearse it, how does nobody run or know where the closest AED is or have keys to it? How does that happen? That sounds like me, like to me, like something's broken. Something, mm-hmm. something in this law isn't landing. I requested every single venue specific emergency action plan from every single high school, public high school in the state of Kentucky. And actually I asked them for private ones too. And there were some that did respond to the kindness because they don't have to abide by a public records law. Sure. And then we contacted Dr. Sam Scarnell Miller out of the West Virginia University to review each plan. Every single one of them, she and her master's students went through every single one to see how it matched up with the criteria word for word of the Kentucky law. And then it was either a yes or a no. They had it or they didn't or likely yes, they had it, but we couldn't tell based on all venues available. Not we, them couldn't tell based on all the venues available because it would have required them to go to all 250 some schools that are public in Kentucky. And they just said like, the information isn't there for us as we're going through it. Then if you're a visiting team, you're not going to know this information. So that was one part. Another part was I got the budgets, athletic department budgets of every single school in the Commonwealth. There are 288 high schools and I got their participation, sports participation numbers, and broke down the cost of what an AED would be, a wet bulb globe thermometer would be, and a cold tub would be 
per participant to show that the argument that it's not in a budget, Doug Casa, the head of the Corey, CEO of the Corey Stringer Institute, has said in almost every interview I've had with him that you can't argue anymore that it's not in your budget that it's not a valid argument and he doesn't believe it. He kept saying it enough that I finally said, well, I wonder what, how much are their budgets really? And that was the reason behind why I, I did that. So, And it, if I remember correctly, it was $4 and something, wasn't it, per athlete total? Yeah, I think it was $4.92. Something like that. Yeah, it's a great graphic and I, I loved it as I was scrolling through it and reading it that it, it just goes to show you, I, you know, and that's my always been my argument when we talk about things like this, these simple things, and we can go back and forth. You know, I'm on our state high school athletic association's sports medicine advisory committee in Missouri. And when we, we talk about things and what are we doing? And when we say, you know, mandating things versus recommending things and the differences between those and what does that mean? And obviously there's, there is that financial thing once we start to mandate things uh, as opposed to recommended, because then everybody has to pay up for things that may have a financial cost to it. And what does that mean for the rural Missouri school versus a wealthy private school in the suburbs of a major city? And obviously there are differences there and we have to take those into account, but still when it comes down to the athlete and the safety, there is a price of having sports. And that price obviously comes down to also safety. And if you can afford the shiny new turf field, there should be a reason. There should be also something in that budget to be able to afford a simple thing like a cold tub or the wet bulb globe thermometer, which we were fortunate to have be able to get a, a bunch. So, so every school had the able to, ability to in Missouri, we were able to get access to those so that any school who wanted one could have one, even without uh, having to pay out of pocket. So every school could have at least one. And so it's one of those things that, you know, it, it where do you prioritize? Right. And I think that's absolutely, what, you know, if a booster cup can raise a bunch of money in order to get new uniforms and you're talking $4 and 92 cents, we'll just round it up to even five bucks, a five spot. You know, if you can't add an extra five spot per athlete when I have to, you know, for my kid, $60 athletic fee each year, in addition to what the school already has for a budget for sports, just to participate in sports, I don't think it's that much of a stretch for any school at any district to say that, hey, this is, these are basic necessities that we need for the safety of our athletes. So it's good. It's helpful to have things like what you've done and have that, that out there and that simple dollar amount. Cause when you put a dollar amount and it's that simple to have very key, things that can help us to potentially save a life. You know, obviously it's, it's important to have the equipment that's there, but then you also have to enact it and have the people who are willing to do it, which is the next step of that. Right. So I was going to say, I mean, can you imagine walking up to a concession stand during a game and being like, Hey, I'm going to buy all this food. And also, by the way, like there's an AED we're trying to fundraise for. And if you would just give a dollar, this AED could save any of these athletes' life during practices. And by the way, a lot of the times they're used on the fans, the coaches, the referees. It can be used. It's not like it's only specific to the athletes. An AED can save anybody. So mm -hmm. where there's, there's just a disconnect. And so I was trying to, you know, it hit me. I was standing in Noxie helmet refurbish, like warehouse. Yeah. And the, the refer helmet refurbisher said like, you wouldn't believe how much money these athletic departments actually have. And I said, what are you talking about? Because they tell me all the time they don't have any money. And he said, maybe you should ask them for their bills for their helmet refurbishments, because sometimes we're not just refurbishing them. We are painting them with glitter that you can't see unless some, they look, the only time they look really great 
is if you have a 400 millimeter lens on your camera in a, in a photo, hmm. he said, so where, where are the priorities in their budget? So we do, he's like, we do have people that, you know, can't refurbish helmets or it is an extreme cost and they, they are pushing the limits on it. And then there are some that he just said, I would, I would, I would question them. So I started hearing it from enough places that I was like, maybe, maybe I really should, I should probably ask about this. <laughs> yeah. What do you think? What was the most surprising thing that you found out of your, your safer sideline series and doing your investigation? You know, that moment of the cost per participant that it would yeah. cost to save a life. I walked yeah. into my editor's office and I said, do you want to guess how much it would cost for this <laughs> device or this device? And he just stood there and he's like, no. And I was near tears by the final one. Just because mm-hmm. I, just because what we haven't talked about yet is because I've spent the last nine years of my life creating a database of athletes who have died from sudden death because the NCCSIR has a database, but it's not a public one and they don't attach names to it. And I, and I understand that. And also sometimes to understand a problem that you have to make it human. Mm-hmm. These are a lot of humans. Mm-hmm. At that point in my reporting, to know how much it would cost a school to implement these and to see some of the budgets that they actually do have. Like there are some schools in Kentucky that have budgets in the hundreds of thousands. I think I want to say there's like one or two that have in the millions. Mm-hmm. To see that and to and to know if that money could get spread around somehow or mm-hmm. if we could just advocate better as athletic departments for these health and safety measures. If this school over here has the cool shiny helmets and then this school wants them, if this school over here has a bunch of AEDs and they use them, you don't think this school over here is going to want them? I just, there's there's a disconnect somewhere along the line and I don't know where it happened, but I'm trying to just report on, hey, here's where the break is. How do we mend this break? Because it doesn't need to be this way. It's not like this in, in it's definitely not like this in pro sports. You know, everybody will tell you the pro sports are loaded with cash, which of course they are. So they have that access to that stuff. I mean, you you put in, I believe, one of your reports, the the lovely statistic that is well known out there that I believe there's 27 medical professionals on a football NFL mm-hmm. sideline on a Sunday between the two teams of all sorts of different types of backgrounds and disciplines. So there's lots of resources that are there at the disposal for for that particular game. But, you know, we don't have that luxury always on a football sideline in high school. But that right. doesn't mean that we can't do that. And, you know, the other the, the, the thing to emphasize with the cost there, too, is for most of these things we're talking about, these are one time expenses. It's not like you're having to buy a new AED for the school every single year. So if you just talk about it in one year, you know, five dollars per athlete per school for one year of your budget in order to get your cold tub and get your AED and get your wet bulb globe thermometer, which are going to probably last you for several years. This is not a, a, the cost goes down on a, on an annual basis. If you look at it for just even replacing these types of things, unless you want to have a whole stockpile of them and then do that on an annual basis. So it it gets even more ridiculous when we think about that with, with the argument that we can't afford it in the, in the big picture of things. But how about, you know, just going back, uh, just a couple other things on your safer sidelines. And I, I do want to touch your deadly games database. Did you have anything that you found that was most encouraging on your reporting to you? Or was it all <laughs> all disappointing and discouraging? <laughs> no, no, no. What was encouraging is not what you can see in the articles, but what I know exists that built these articles, which are a whole lot of athletic trainers and experts 
and doctors who have spent hours, like hours and hours and hours helping me understand what the problem is to get to the point that I was able to report it and explain it to the public in a way that I felt was consumable, Mm -hmm. was was like, hey, this is a, a problem that we all can understand. The other part that was encouraging is, and this also came out of the grant that I had received from the Center for Health Journalism, is that I had to, I received an engagement, so I received a data grant. That's where, you know, all the stuff we just talked about, but I also received an engagement grant and that engagement grant had me build a community of athletic trainers who were willing to help me and called it ATAT, the athletic trainers advisory team. And they helped me just figure out like, did I have the desk for the database that happened in that state, you know, state laws, especially with all the AD things that were going on. But then I also in January went to parent heart watch convention, which is all parents who have mostly lost their kids to sudden cardiac arrest. There are some survivors, but I mean, I don't know how many conventions you've been to. I've I've been to quite a lot of different Mm -hmm. topics and and I've never seen tissues on the table. Yeah. It was the hardest conference I've ever gone to. And it took a long time, honestly, mentally for me to walk like walk away from it with realizing like what the, like the glimmer, like the good that I, that came from it, which was, oh my goodness, there are so many parents who just don't want it to happen to you. Mm -hmm. And they have created this community that they are warriors in and they are just, they want change Mm -hmm. and they want it to be better for the next person. And they don't want to add people to their group. And I didn't have access to really many of those parents or their foundations prior to going to that conference. And that's when I started realizing like, wait a minute, foundations are created because an athlete has died. And those are stories. And I, I had a lot of those kids' names in the database, but I didn't, I'd never talked to most of their parents. And it was encouraging to see maybe what isn't happening in X state is happening in B state. Like it was really cool to see like, well, for 20 years we've had this law and I'm like, Oh, so it is possible. Mm-hmm. It is possible to rehearse your AED, um, you know, every season it, or your sudden cardiac arrest drills every season. It is possible to have AEDs in every single high school. It is possible to put cold tubs on all sidelines. It yeah. was, uh, it was eye opening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's one of those. And I, I think, and this is why it's really important for you to do what you are doing and to continue that is just, it, it is important to open people's eyes because I think most people's experience with sports is the stuff they see on TV, their experiences with kids that are generally for the most part positive, but there are some, there are some bad sides of sports. And if a sports reporting is all just about the W's and L's and the trade that happens in pro sports and, you know, so-and-so won the state championship, but we don't talk about these types of things, we are going to run into troubles with sports not being safe. And we are going to see more kids that die. And I think it's, you know, I, I think what you're doing, I think is, is super, super important. And I think that's a, it's a good transition to talk about your database. You know, you have this, it's called the deadly games database. And 
tell me about the information you've collected on here, because I know if we probably compared it to the other database that I know that is circulating around there, <laughs> we could probably have a little discussion and argue, and I'm referring to the, the COVID, COVID database of people who have died after the COVID vaccine that are all these athletes that are died because of the vaccine. If we look at it and say, no, this is not something that's just new since the vaccine. This is something that athletes have experienced for a long time. So tell me a little bit about your database. Sure. So the Deadly Games database goes all the way back to 1909. It's that number because that's the earliest newspaper clipping I could find of a report of an athlete who had collapsed and died with a reportable, some of them were unknown at that time, but some of them were really gnarly writing on the causes. I started that following the death of an athlete in my hometown. His name was Jake West and he died of sudden cardiac arrest he had hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and in 2013, he collapsed during practice, and the closest AED was in the coach's office. I feel like in some ways, Jake has guided my reporting, just being from my same hometown, and his mom came out and talked at it this triathlon that I was about to race. I just remember thinking, like, wait a minute, if I had read about Max Gilpin dying in Louisville, and now Jake died in my hometown, this has got to be happening in other people's hometowns. And so I just started compiling names. And the thing is, is if you look up one name and you start to research it, you likely find another kid in that town or a town nearby who died two or 10 years before. And sure enough, a few years after Jake died, there was a baseball player named Mark Mayfield who died in school in New Prairie High School. And he was playing an intramural pickup basketball game and went to get a drink at the water fountain, collapsed, and nobody knew that he had collapsed because he was in the hallway and, and school was out, right? So, and there are a lot of cases in Northern Indiana, I learned. And it's like that in a lot of places, right? Like right before Safer Sidelines published, I was in a small town in Tennessee and went to church with some friends. And the pastor said, Oh, when I was growing up, there was one in the game, you know, happened right. The, one of the Friday night football games he had played in. And I was like, do you happen to remember that person's name? And he's like, yeah. And he said the name and I pulled up my phone and I Googled it. And sure enough, there it was. And I didn't have him. And he's like, well, yeah. And then, you know, crazy enough, when my daughter was in high school, Matthew Goodfeller was his at his daughter's high school, who was a kid who died in North Carolina of, a, I believe, a traumatic brain injury. And, and so it was things like that, right? The more I would talk to people about it, the more stories I would hear about this person. And then it would lead down to like endless newspaper clippings and TV reports and obituaries of this kid who died and this kid who died. And, th- and I just started compiling them. And then I started to tweet more about it after Matthew's actually... <laughs> Actually, the day Matthew died, I talked about, I found the tweet a while ago about the day Matthew died, I tweeted something about, you know, how I was compiling, I had compiled this database. And at the time I had called it the boys who died of football, because that was the name of the article that first got me into like really understanding about sudden death in sport, which was written about Max Gilpin by Sports Illustrated. And I eventually combined it in the start of this year with Dr. Steve Horwitz, and because he had done some, he's on on the medical advisory committee mm-hmm. for the Jordan McNair Foundation. So he had done some in the time frame of when Jordan had passed, which was very helpful for me because I had tweeted about a bunch of them but never put them in the database. And then I also combined with, oh my gosh, Scott. I also combined with Scott Anderson, uh, 
the former University of Oklahoma athletic trainer, because he had been doing this the whole time too. For way before I had been doing it, he had been tracking deaths of athletes because he had seen it at the college level. And so we combined our databases and the day we combined them, my editor asked if I thought I was going to make deadline. And I was pretty sure I was not because yeah. it was, it was disgusting. It was, it, it was a lot to, it was a lot to hold. And I'm very thankful that I have a small core group of athletic trainers who said, we'll help you. And they helped me organize it because the way Scott had his categories and the way I had my categories, we had to match them and make it all come into one. Sure. And it was just a lot to sit into, right? Like every line of a database is a human being yeah. who died playing a game yep. or directly after that game while they went home and slept, right? Like they were all pretty much within the confines of doing what you do as a kid. You go and play and you play a game. And I say that all the time. Like I, it's kids. You don't expect Matt Mangine and Kim Mangine did not expect Matthew did not come home. Kim was standing in the parking lot when Matthew collapsed. They had just gone to like Dick's Sporting Goods or something, right? Mm -hmm. Matt doesn't even remember what he last said to Matthew that morning necessarily because it was a normal day. And that's what everyone will tell you. It was a normal day. It was a day like any other. And then, and so that database really got to me because it was a normal day for all those families. Is this something that you have publicly available, by the way? The Deadly Games database? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll be sure to have a link on that so people can reference to that and take a look at that for sure. You know, where do you see your advocacy and your reporting going in the future? Do you have any plans as far as your your next venture? You know, There's it's always funny, that next one, right? Right. I never set out to be like to do advocacy journalism. I just gave a voice to people I couldn't believe we're not being heard. I don't know anything about this topic. The sports medicine community does. And I just kept hearing it. But I think to say that just because Safer Sidelines published, like that's it for me, like absolutely not. You guys have been trying to say about this for decades and decades and decades. The Corey Stringer Institute has poured a ton of research and money into the topic and they're going state by state to try and make change. I think right now it's to continue to point people to safer sidelines to try and point parents and administrators and school boards and legislators to read this, to learn what they don't know. And it's okay that they don't know it because I didn't know it at one point and you didn't know it. And lots mm -hmm. of people didn't know it. That's right. why there's reporters. Yep. And then from there, I think that there's just topics that I've come across throughout this whole thing that I've just been like, huh, a group of athletic trainers, that core group of athletic trainers that help me with the database. They said one day, they said, you know, you're never going to run out of things to report on with this. Do you know that? And I said, <laughs> you know, there was a time in here where I think I learned I, that I needed to, that I needed to share something like safer sidelines with everybody because that was just the beginning. So I don't know what's next because like I said, <laughs> I didn't set out to, to report on this. It kind of found me. And so I think whatever comes up next, whether that be about AEDs in schools or who knows what, if it needs to be have a light shown on it and a voiceless needs to be given a voice, then I'm for it. You know, 
Matt Mangine really helped me when I was stuck trying to write safer sidelines. He called me one day because I asked to ask him a couple of questions about the project and he said, how's it going? Because, <laughs> you know, I'm in the middle of covering everything with Damar Hamlin and, and the Mangine family and everything that changed with their lives when Damar collapsed. And I joked with him that I needed him to be in a bubble. And I said, you know, I finally sat down to write, Matt. I got time to sit down and write. And I don't know what to say. Like, I have so much to say. I don't know what to say. And he said, you know what I do when I go up there and I have to give a speech about Matthew? And I said, what? He said, I speak for him. So written on a little sticky note on my computer, it says, speak for him. Yeah. Yeah. If you were granted one wish out of all the stuff you've investigated so far. No. And that one thing. (laughs) (laughs) if you could pick that one thing that you could do for the sports medicine community that we would, you know, you have your carte blanche. And obviously again, there's, there's all sorts of stuff. And I know that there could be a list of probably 10 or 12 things that could be on that list. But if you, if you pick a pick one, what would you, what would you pick? One thing to investigate? No, not to investigate, but if you could have one wish that would be granted, that would say we did this one thing and to advocate for a safer sideline, what would you pick? Say it again. Say it one more time. Yeah. If you had one wish that could be granted that would, you know, out of safer sidelines, if one thing that could be done, what would you have in your top of your wish list? I think it would be to put an AED on every single sideline because that's the cost barrier for everyone. Everything else isn't the cost barrier. It's the AED. And the thing is, is for me, an AED on every sideline covers practices and games and you know you have more practices than games obviously mm-hmm. but what it really does is it saves everybody it doesn't just save the athletes it makes the world safer so what's better than making safer sidelines is making a safer community mm-hmm. and with sudden cardiac arrest outside of hospitals being so prevalent and the death rate of that being so high why not put aeds in the community why not want more of them Mm-hmm. Why not make it all safer? I love all of the rest of them. Obviously, yeah. I have, yeah. they all have a place in my heart. But I, I'm, I am the daughter of a man who died of sudden cardiac arrest. So, yeah, the whole world I think would be better with more AEDs. Yeah, and I totally get what you say about that whole list and hugging that whole list and holding that close. Cause obviously those of us in sports medicine, we, we have a long, long, long list of all the things that we would love to see changed about sports in, in general to make things safer and more sane and all those types of things. And uh, yeah, it's tough to pick, pick the one I know. No, now I'm all like hot and sweating. Like, Oh my gosh. I'm sorry. Don't I didn't mean to get you like cold that. Tub people. I, I, I hear cold tubs too, but hundred dollars versus a thousand. Like let's start with the thousand dollar. That's right. Get the most bang right? for your buck. Get the top thing, the most expensive thing off the list, the other stuff, then it makes it even that much more reasonable. Well, and I, I had a friend who once told me like, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. And what's yep. the biggest bite for everybody right now? AEDs. Yeah, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. I mean, that's even personally, I'm just like, you know what, can I drop my, you know, I drop a grand or whatever it's going to take to have an AED just I carry around in my, in my car. I haven't, I haven't made that, that financial commitment yet, but you know, I, boy, I think about it long and hard, especially as I get older now in my fifties, I'm like, maybe we need to have that AED hanging around. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it is. And it, it'd be awesome if they, we could find one way to make those also a little bit more not so cost prohibitive. But, it, but if you it, start it, buying more, the costs will go down, right? One would hope. One would hope, right? Hopefully. <laughs> one would hope. <laughs> one would hope. 
we like to end our podcast with something that we call the Pearl of the Podcast. And this has all sorts of, of connotations and, and I let people kind of run with it the way they want to. We just kind of think of it as a take-home point. That's in medicine. We have our pearls of the thing that is like the key nugget, the one thing we like as a take-home point that we really want our listeners to take away from what our discussion's been today. So, so we'll let you have what's your pearl. I think my pearl is, is that it doesn't have to be this way. If you read Safer Sidelines, which you're going to need to set aside some time for, you'll see why it doesn't have to be this way. And there's data and gold standards and advocates and experts and on and on of people who will tell you it doesn't have to be this way. So why does it continue to be this way? And I would I would agree with that sentiment. You're going to need to take some time. And that's where... <laughs> And, and that's not a bad thing. And because we are in a world where, you know, unfortunately, journalism online these days are short little nuggets that people can read in 10 seconds and doesn't give you the depth and the detail and the blood, sweat and tears it took you to go through and investigating and, and reporting all that. And so that's a testimony to the work you put into it. And I, as a sports medicine physician, thank you for that. And I know many, many others have. And obviously that's been reflected in, in the awards you've received recently because of the work that you've done. I'd really like to thank Stephanie Kuzadem for her time and again for her advocacy, her passion for keeping athletes safe, and the use of her platform just to help bring these issues to the forefront to the public. Sports medicine can certainly use more individuals like Stephanie. So be sure to check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. And we do appreciate your five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.